I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. So welcome to Jennifer and Jason to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having us. Hi. (laughs) I was just saying to them, this is like my first threesome podcast, which is so fitting (laughs) since their whole book is like about sex. So anyway. (laughs) So Mr. Nice Guy, your book was fantastic. I couldn't put it down. I read it all in like two days. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. It was really, really good. And I saw on the book where people said, oh, it's a page turner. And I'm like, is it really when people say that? But it really was. So I was, I was delighted. Yeah, you, you know what's funny, funny about that? We had the two blurbs on the cover. I didn't realize until the book was actually published that they both say basically the same thing. Like they have the same <laughs> language, which is like I, I like couldn't put it down or whatever it is. It's really it's very similar. Which as an editor drives me crazy because I spend a lot of time taking out word repetitions. But there it is. Well, it, it hammered home the point. Yeah. And then it, it lived up to it. Yeah, so it, it would have been even worse had it not in this yeah. in this instance with the with the two quotes. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? And just tell listeners generally what it's about. Okay, so I'll explain what it's about and then Jason can take it yeah. from there. So Mr. Nice Guy, it is a romantic comedy about two people who every week sleep together and then critically review each other's performance in a magazine. It's set in the world of New York magazine publishing, which is a world that Jason and I know very well. We've been magazine and newspaper writers for a really long time. And we really drew a lot from our experiences kind of dating and also working in the city. We are now married, <laughs> just to make that clear. But um, Jason, you want to talk about where the idea came from? Yeah. So the idea came from me in my 20s. I was probably like a, like a, a newspaper reporter at the time, community newspaper reporter. And I got an email one day from this then internet famous sex columnist. She had just graduated college. She had, people knew who she was back then. I don't think they do now. And, and I did. And she was just looking for freelance writing advice. She had seen my name show up in a number of publications and had decided to reach out. And I was very happy to be in touch with her. It was kind of cool. And so we traded emails for maybe about a year, totally professional emails, no sexy emails. But in doing that, the premise for this story just popped into my head, just being in touch with the sex columnist. I was like, well, what would happen if two people each week slept together and then critically reviewed each other's performance in a magazine? And I tried to write it over many years and couldn't because I'm really not a fiction writer. I'm a nonfiction writer. My background is in magazines. And I would try and I'd put it back on the shelf and I'd try. And, but over those years, I also kept telling people the premise and everyone just loved the premise, which encouraged me to keep trying. When I met Jen and we started dating, I told her, she encouraged me. Anyway, after many, many, many failures, Jen, we we got married. And then Jen sold her most recent novel, which is called The Heart You Carry Home. And she was looking for a new project and asked me what I thought she should do. And I said, just write my book. Like, just <laughs> write my because I'm never going to do it myself. And we both agree it's a great premise, so, like, just do it. And she said, well, let's do it together. And that's why we jumped into this thing. That's awesome. Did you have any trouble working together? Was there any sticking point in plot or something or a big fight? Or <laughs> um, Well, so we kind of parceled out the work kind of strategically to try to avoid that happening and to keep our marriage intact. <laughs> 
I think working on a creative project with your significant other can be a risky move. So really how we broke it down was that we plotted the book out together and then Jason wrote all of the columns because the columns from the two protagonists, Lucas and Carmen, are all in the book. He has a background as a columnist and editor of columns, so that worked well for him. And then because I have written previous novels, I wrote the majority of the narrative and and the character development. So we really kind of had our separate roles, and then we edited each other's work, which again can be tricky when you're criticizing or critiquing the creative output of your spouse. But I think because we both have backgrounds in journalism and we're really used to being edited, Mm -hmm. we were able to kind of work through any differences that that we had. And then, of course, there were the times in which I said, no, we're doing it this way, and then Jason just kind of gave up. <laughs> there you go. That's, a, that's the best way to resolve a fight. Yeah, <laughs> steamrolling. I like it. <laughs> so I found one of the big themes of the book was being an outsider. So Lucas, the protagonist, came from a small town. His boss, Jays, came from a small town in Kansas, I think it was. One of the scenes at the end of the book was basically a room full of people from out of town. So I wanted to know what you guys thought about people coming into New York and basically trying to make it here. Do you feel like New York ever really does accept transplants like these people? Why do you think everybody has to come here to New York? Like, can't they go to L.A. where it's so much prettier? Why here? Why is everything like, (laughs) Yeah. um, what do you think about that? Well, I feel like, I suspect Janet and I may have somewhat different answers to this. I don't know. Should I go first? Go first. Yeah. All right. Well, it's worth noting for me that I, prior to living in New York, was in Boston. And I find that place to be actually far harder to be an outsider because most of the people who you encounter in Boston are from Boston. And their parents are from Boston and their grandparents are from Boston. And there's a real institutionalness to that place. And also there's a similarity of culture. Everybody is into the Red Sox and everybody, right? And that place never felt like home to me. New York is very different. Almost nobody who you encounter, I mean, you know, among our set, right? Like if we were living in like the far reaches of Queens or something, everybody would have been there forever. But like, you know, whatever. We're, we all like moved here for jobs or whatever. And that's I'm our from network. Here. You're from here? I'm You're from, from here. actually from here? I'm actually from oh, here. Oh, you are the rare person <laughs> I meet who's actually from here. So most of the people that I meet and interact with are not from here. And so the culture is very much of people who came here to kick butt. Like, that is the reason they came here. I think that this is a difficult city to live in. It's a difficult city to afford to live in. And you are only going to do it if you have a mission. And that, I think, at least in our, in my community, in our community, that is what binds us all together. So I, and also, you know, unlike Boston, where there's one culture, there's one mindset, there's one interest set, here, It's fragmented in a million different places. I feel like it's actually quite easy to find your own community in New York because there is no one singular community. And so I think that what we were reflecting in the book was that this sense of outsiderness is absolutely as much as you make it for yourself. I think these characters were carrying around a burden that a lot of people feel when they come here, but it's not really about connecting and belonging to New York. It's collecting and belonging to the thing that all these very successful people who came and banded together have made into their own New York. And like, you want to be part of that. You want to be part of that little micro community, which frankly, nobody else cares about, right? (laughs) Like, you know, it's like in the world. We were just, I mean, this makes me think we were watching Amazon in the jungle 
Wait, is that what it's called? Mozart in the Jungle. Mo Mozart in the Jungle, last night, which is about the New York Symphony. And, you know, it was all about kind of the power plays between the conductors and the composers. And Jason turned to me and he's like, you know, do you think this really happens in the classical music scene? I'm like, look at the writing scene. Like, yes, absolutely. Like, everybody is vying for their place. Everybody is trying to not just fit in, but to, you know, kind of solidify like, I'm here. I deserve to be here. I want to be successful here. And I think that's really what our characters are striving for. What I do think is interesting is that one of our protagonists, Carmen, who's the very seasoned and also fairly jaded sex columnist, she is also from New York. And I actually think that in her attempt to try to kind of be more professionally, she actually kind of loses herself a little bit. And her kind of narrative trajectory over the course of the book is kind of coming back to her roots as like, who am I as a person who's from this city and who, you know, shouldn't have to be fighting and scrambling to try to be successful because I was here before all of you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> have you thought about writing Carmen's story as a the next book. Yeah, so so that was one of the questions Jason the Zivi was wondering, like, you know, should the sequel to Mr. Nice Guy be from Carmen's POV? I mean, we haven't really thought about doing a sequel to this book. We actually have another rom-com oh, yeah? in, in mind. I don't know. It's a great idea, maybe, to kind of go into her brain, but... What's your new rom? Yeah. What's the new rom com about? Well, so the new rom com uh, we're thinking is is about two political pundits on opposing sides Ooh, good. who fall in love, and kind of what happens. What is their public persona versus what happens behind the scenes? So that's I think looking like it's going to be our next joint project. Yeah, I feel like sadly in today's political environment, people on opposite sides could not even really date. You know. <laughs> Sure, it happens very infrequently. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's so much vitriol and yeah. sadly, but yeah, yeah. I mean, what interests me about that, I mean, what like Jen and I are motivated by, I think, somewhat different things in that project. The thing that really interests me is getting inside that world of pundits and people who are kind of they're professionally angry, mm -hmm. right? And because I am convinced, and we've had a couple conversations just to, as to start researching this book, I am convinced that these, these people are not. What you see is not real, right? They're actors functionally. And then they go on to camera and they all yell at each other and then the cameras stop and then they're all professional colleagues, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's bad for everybody because the people who receive that in their living rooms aren't really aware that they're watching a performance, but they are watching a performance. And I'm very, very interested in diving into that world and revealing that and coming to understand that better. Interesting. That sounds like fun. At least you're willing to write another book together, so that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so your book also touches a lot about sort of the diminishing power of print media, which since you're both from the magazine world, I was interested to know your thoughts on. You know, I felt like every other page brought in another social media outlet or a Facebook Live or, you know, this deal on Netflix, or it was just so sort of of the moment, like how people really are consuming media. And I was just wondering... As, you know, newspaper and journal journalists and magazine writers, how do you feel about what's going on? And what do you think, like, the point of view is on this 
And what did you want the book to to sort of say about it? Sure. I mean, I think that what the book is really exploring is the transition between the old guard, like the Anna Wintours, and the new guard, which are these young upstarts, these 20-somethings, like Lucas, our protagonist, who are coming in, like, really hungry to make it. And there's still this tension where the young upstarts who are, you know, terribly underpaid and, you know, treated not very well, are still having to play this game of trying to impress the people at the top, trying to kind of play into, or they find themselves, you know, becoming part of this cult of personality, which, you know, for decades has really driven the magazine industry. You've got these untouchable editors at the top who are just these larger-than-life personalities. Jason certainly has worked for some of them in his magazine career, but those people are starting to topple. I mean, simply because the magazine, the companies don't want to pay them <laughs> the salaries that they've been paid. And so we're really at this interesting moment of transition where the old guard like is kind of has this like death grip and the young generation is like trying to scramble upwards and yet doesn't exactly have the resources to do that. And so, you know, and I'm not sure if we're making like a specific point about like print media is dying. I mean, I have a thriving career right now, knock on wood, <laughs> writing for the New York Times and the Washington Post magazine. You know, the Post magazine has just completely rebooted. Their rates have gone up. I mean, really, really great, great stuff. So I'm not willing to say that, you know, print is dying, but there is definitely a new wave that's coming through. And, and we wanted to explore that. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel as a, I've worked in as a magazine editor for the majority of my career, it does feel like Rome is falling, but I honestly don't mourn it. I mean, I, it sucks. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. And friends of mine who had dreams of spending their entire career as magazines have had to rethink what it is that they do. But I always remind myself that a lot of these publications were created out of some economic opportunity, you know? And it's not like these are things that we all must have forever. Men's Health, where I used to work, was a spinoff of prevention. And it was there because Rodale at the time saw an opportunity to serve health content to men and that there was an advertising base for it. And so it was created. And then it was created and then personalities developed and then there was a lot of money. And so a lot of those personalities were protected for a long time. And it became this institution where there's a lot of exclusivity and you want to be a part of it and there's influence and all that. And that's changing now because the economics of it are changing. And so to me, like, well, who cares if it goes away? Because the foundational necessity of it is not going away. There will be information communicated in some form. It just won't be in this form. And, you know, boo-hoo to the people who had a good run at the very top of it and made a lot of money, and now they have to go do something else. I, at once, really appreciate everything that this industry has provided for me, but I want to be realistic about what's important. I, I just— you know, what What that also makes me think in terms of, you know, Rome is falling. I mean, I think, Jason, I think we, in some ways, Mr. Nice Guy is, you know, it's our own little kind of hammer at, <laughs> at the foundation because the book is really a satire mm -hmm. of the media world. And it's a satire of that excess of the cults of personality. I mean, just to give you one, so there's a lot in the book that Jason and I have drawn from our personal experiences working in media. And like, really, we were trying to satirize, like, just the absurdity of it and the excess of it. One small example is that when Jason was working at Men's Health, the editor-in-chief at the time had 
had purchased a restaurant in the West Village. And Jason, like, it wasn't ever explicitly said that the staff couldn't go out to eat there. But when I asked if we could go to eat there, Jason was like, no, no, no. Like, I can't be seen there without an invitation. You know, like, it would look really bad, right? And we put that right in the book because it's so ridiculous. Like, who is keeping a regular person out of a restaurant? You know, but that's actually, like, that's not fiction. Right. (laughs) That's reality. And it's absurd. So we wanted to kind of point that out and let everybody know how ridiculous it is. I interned at Vanity Fair during college, Mm. so I got a glimpse of the world myself back then, and all the interns at the different Condé Nast publications got together for this one seminar one day on Will the internet, you know, disrupt this industry? (laughs) So that's dating how, you know, I'm obviously very old at this point. But anyway, it's sort of funny to see how it's all played out. But I also am like a huge consumer of print media myself. And I'm a little bit more of a sentimentalist, I think, than you are. Like, Yeah, I'm not a sentimentalist about anything. Yeah. I get (laughs) sad. Like when stores close, I like cry. I'm like, you know, so I'm sort of sad for the brands that have been built over time. But Yeah, but see, but the core thing that you love is not going to go away. It's just that the shape of it is is changing. That's true. That's true. You know, so it's like, don't confuse like the thing of it with just the shape of it. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) I I feel properly steeled. Yeah. For the fall of Rome. So that was good. And also, one more point about the fall of Rome. Yeah. We wouldn't be here today if Rome didn't fall. Like the fall of Rome was not the end of everything. It was just the end of one thing and the beginning of something else. Oh, so we're really talking about Rome now. I mean, yeah. that now I'm literally talking <laughs> okay, about okay, okay. I'm yeah. switching. I'm switching gears. Yeah, no, that okay, was that yeah. was a the literal actual, comment yes, on room. Yes, I got, I got that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, all right. <laughs> so let's go back to talking about sex in this book. So, how did you, were you like blushing writing these scenes? Some of them are like very, you know, telling. Like, did your parents read this book? Like, how did that whole thing? That. I mean, there is something sort of. <laughs> cringe-inducing and, like, you're doing it in a way, yeah, right? Yeah, like it's a big oy vey. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so Jason and I, the audio version of Mr. Nice Guy's available. They hired an actor to read the narrative, but Jason and I volunteered to read the columns. And ah. when we went in to read the columns, we hadn't looked at the book in a while, and we didn't, I think we just, like, weren't focusing on the fact that most of the sex takes place in the columns, which meant that basically for the audiobook, we are these pseudo-born stars. Like, that's what we have to do. And, like, as we were in the booth reading the lines, I mean, I was just had these horrible images of my parents listening <laughs> listening to this. I think it's really, I definitely had this experience like writing some of the sexual details. And I just want to be clear for, for listeners, like this is not Fifty Shades of Grey. It's not a bodice ripper. It, this is... This is not nothing a, heaves. Nothing heaves. This is not a, a romance novel, but there's sex, <laughs> and we definitely describe, you know, some of the interesting proclivities of <laughs> of the various characters, and yeah, it takes. I think it takes courage to actually put that stuff on the page because I know that when I'm writing that stuff, I'm thinking to myself. Anyone reading this, and especially anyone reading this who knows me, is going to realize that this came out of my head. So, like, even if this is something that, like, I'm not necessarily doing, like, in my own relationship, like, I still thought of it. And that's kind of embarrassing. I don't, (laughs) my, I'm pretty sure, my mom says she read it. I believe her, like, 85%. My dad definitely didn't read it. Jason's parents read it. I, I mean, I can... Jason, I they just read like, it, they wanted to talk about it. I mean, they, they wanted they to really talk about it. it. We're like, no thanks, yeah. let's not talk about it. 
<laughs> yeah, they're very supportive parents. I mean, Jen's parents are supportive too, but I guess have weaker stomachs. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, 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 they read it. I, I mean, here's my, I mean, my, my sort of main thought on the, on the sex stuff in the book was that I did not want to write sex scenes where we were describing characters having sex. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that's very, very challenging. It's awkward as a writer. I think it's awkward as a reader. And I think it's almost impossible to do in a comfortable way. It always reads like bad sex writing. And there is a award that is given out every year for the worst sex writing, and we really didn't want to get that award. <laughs> so the solution was to have all the sex happen off screen. So, you know, as you know, because you read the book, what will happen is that there will be, like, the, the narrative, right, describing the characters will move up to the moment where, like, something really sexy is going to happen, and then cut. And, like, the next thing, the way that you hear about it is in the columns, at which point we're not describing the sex. We're having a character describe their own experience of the sex. And that feels totally different. That feels more like somebody just sitting at a bar telling you something than it does like some writer trying to paint a sexy picture. It was a solution that made us both feel comfortable like getting into those kinds of scenes. Awesome. So I just wanted to ask, in the very beginning of the book, when Lucas unwittingly sort of finds himself in a sex column, not realizing he was going to be in one, which I don't think I'm giving anything away. That no, was like right in the beginning, early. right? Okay. That sort of level of complete mortification, which you captured brilliantly. Have you guys personally, either of you felt that about anything that you're willing to share? Has anything else, has anything made you feel like that terrible offhand? Ooh. Would you... You you gestured to me like I have a story. Do I have a story? <laughs> well, well, no, just you know, Jason. In writing Carmen's perspective in the columns, Jason, you know, you've been very upfront about the fact that you're drawing from your own experience uh, or inexperience as a you know young twenty something and what women might have thought about you. So so that's how Jason got into Carmen's head. So you know, and you've described some mortifying things. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 have happened not not as mortifying as as opening up the magazine that you work for and realizing that you have been torn to shreds by the magazine sex columnist which is what happens to, to Lucas but i i do think that you know especially like you know we're we're both 38 we dated a lot we you know got around <laughs> To a certain extent, like everybody fumbles. Mm -hmm. Everybody has really awkward experiences, especially when, like sexual experiences, especially when they're younger. And so I think it's just kind of honest, like putting that stuff in. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that anything that we wrote about in the book actually happened to us in terms of, of the sex. I don't know. Jason, <laughs> it didn't. It didn't even have to be in that context. Just that. Just that the feeling humiliation. of mortification. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm struggling. I'm trying to think. I am sure that I've had many times when I'm when I've been mortified. I mean, when I think about it, I think I like I sort of flash back to very very early th like things I did when I was ten that mm -hmm. were extremely embarrassing. But now a little less so. But you know, but I've I've also I've now learned that. Even if you do something that you're kind of you're embarrassed about, it kind of it, like it doesn't really stick, you know. Like it only sticks as much as you let it stick. So there have been times where even I don't know, like even I'll be on a podcast or something, and I'll because uh, I get interviewed on a lot because because usually because of my job, and I will something will just pop out of my mouth that afterwards I'll be like that was embarrassing that I said that or I said it in that way or what the hell was I talking about? But then I think you know what. It probably wasn't, it probably didn't stick out for other people the way that it stuck out for me. And 
nobody else is going to remember it except for me. So like, if I keep it alive, then it is kept alive. And if I forget it, then it is gone forever. And that's, so it's on me. It's on me. That's just how I've started to think of things. It's funny. A few people after I've done a podcast with them will send me an email and say, I really shouldn't have said, can, you know, did it sound really bad when I was said blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? No. Yeah. And it's like, it's totally fine. Yeah. It's totally right. fine. I didn't, it, it didn't even occur to me to, to have an issue with it at all. So, well, that's funny. So, Jennifer, I really liked your essay, The Battle for Book Club's Attention is More Fierce Than You Can Imagine, which you wrote ages ago on Book Riot. But you talked about all the challenges inherent in marketing a book and all the steps that you had taken to market your book, The Year of the Gadfly. I'm pronouncing that right. So can you talk a little bit more about book marketing in general and how maybe you approach this one differently or what you incorporated from successful attempts from your previous books? Sure. So the first thing is that while writing a book with my husband who, you know, really loves the marketing was such a relief. Jason was basically the CMO of this project. I love doing the podcasts, but actually trying to like line them up and like get the publicity is it's a hustle. It's mm-hmm. like a serious hustle, and it's really really hard. It's like emotionally difficult because I at least feel like I'm competing. I don't even know who I'm competing with. I guess other people whose books are coming out around the same time that mine is, but I'm not even sure. It's just that there's, you need to get attention. You need to get as much attention as you can. You need to try to like light that spark of like the word of mouth, like Mm -hmm. the flame that just like, you know, takes off and there's no science to it. So you just have to hustle and throw everything against the wall and and see what sticks. So when I was marketing my debut novel, The Year of the Gadfly, I came up with this ridiculous project to try to set a record for appearing at the most book clubs in a month. And I was going to try to to hit 100. I think I I hit 76 book clubs. And it was exhausting. And then, of course, you know, I get an email from some other author who's like, you didn't hit the record, I hit the record. And I'm like... I'm like, okay, let's, (laughs) seriously, like, we're both just trying to get our book out there. Like, we don't take this so seriously, you know? So, yeah, I think think that's something that, like, if people outside of the publishing world, like, don't really realize how much work the author, you know, him or herself has to do to try to get the book out there. I mean, the reason that we are on this podcast right now is that, I was doing a ton of research to figure out what podcasts we might possibly be able to go on. And I contacted you. And, you know, the publisher didn't have anything to do with that. And most of the press we've gotten, most of the podcasts that we've gone on, that has all been from, like, under our own our own steam. It's basically become a full-time job for both of us who have full-time jobs. <laughs> so... You know, it's like a whole other facet of of the book, as if writing the book isn't hard hard enough. You then have to really kind of go on the. It's like a being a politician and having to try to persuade everyone why they should pick it up. The last few people, I feel like I've asked, have said like, "Well, what are you working on now?" And they're like, "Well, I'm I'm doing this publicity now. <laughs> like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. This is it. This is, I can't work on anything right now." So yeah, it's extremely time consuming. It really like it. Jen has more flexibility because she is uh, she's freelance, but I, you know, I have an office job, mm-hmm. and it has been a disaster for me, like <laughs> just an absolute disaster. And you're literally running Entrepreneur Magazine right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And still sneaking away and interviewing and doing all these other things. Don't tell yes, his boss. I know, right, yeah, <laughs> sneaking away sometimes is for real. Yeah, I mean, right, like, we, like yeah, we're like, I'm like looking at the time here as we sorry, talk because sorry. I know, because I, no, but because I just know the rest of my day, right? Like, it's very challenging, but you just have to prioritize it. This is important to me, and it's important 
important to us. And so I have been, it's like, to me, that's like, all right, well, do I do a couple podcasts one day and then just stay up till 1130 dealing with entrepreneur stuff that I'm not going to be able to get to? Yes, because that's worth it. And so I haven't pushed myself to the point where anything has failed, right? But it has just required a tremendous amount of time shifting and sacrificing of other things. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors, either of you out there? Absolutely. I mean, I would say that writing a book and getting published, it's a marathon and you just have to commit to the marathon. I mean, for Mr. Nice Guy, Jason and I, we wrote a draft of the book. We actually sent it out to a bunch of agents and got a bunch of rejections, but we got some good feedback and we were able to take that feedback and redo. We actually re rewrote the final third of the novel and that took an extra year, basically. And then once we had done that, then we were able to get an agent and then we were able to sell the book. And I have had an experience that is similar to that in my other books as well. I mean, my debut novel took seven years. Oh my goodness. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the, the, the protagonist of the finished product didn't even exist in the first draft. So I think, I think you've just got to be willing to, you know, be open to feedback and to not get discouraged after two, three, four years <laughs> even if, you know, you're not getting the traction you want because it is possible. You've just got to stick with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, that's yes, yes, I agree. <laughs> okay, great. All right, well, thank you guys for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books, and I really wish you best of luck, not just with the the success of the book, but with the focusing on the publicity of it <laughs> and uh, managing all of that in addition to real life. So thanks, thanks, thank so you, much. I appreciate that. Oh wait, wait, actually, can I ask? I'm going to add one thing. You, yes, you're hovering please. your hand over no, the mouse. No, no, stop. Which, no, would, which would make us you disappear from your ears. No, no, yeah, no, no, no. I didn't mean looking at the clock <laughs> like we should wrap it up. I just meant like I am always, always thinking about what's coming next. I have to, you know. So yeah, what did I want to say? I wanted to say that these are good problems to have. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say. You know, like it's, you should not look at the challenges of it as like a burden. You look at it as the challenges because isn't it wonderful that you are creating a situation in which you have those challenges? Like totally. how awesome is it that we had two thirds of a great book and there were a bunch of people who were like, that's really good, but you need to rewrite the last third. That's a great situation. Yeah. Totally. You know, yeah. that's a great situation. Yeah, thank you, right. And it's like, great, we're almost, we're like two thirds of the way there. Fantastic. And the same thing with, you know, it's like boohoo that I have to move around my day. Like, because I would, I would much rather be here talking about this book with you than like not have a book to talk about. Right. You know? And just have my day be the normal day. Like normal days suck. Normal days, like, you know, nobody should live for normal Dude, days. Dude, I love my normal day. No, no, normal days are terrible. Like, don't you don't live for normal days. You live for the abnormal day. Because the abnormal day is when great things are happening. I love that. Awesome. So there it is. All That's right, here's mine. to no more normal days. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm -hmm.